Calling all benders and non-benders alike. Jump into the epic world of Avatar with your favorite podcast, Avatar, Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney. And me, Dante Bosco. Each week we'll recap and discuss a new episode. So come join us and our amazing guests from creators to cast to superfans to chat about all things Avatarverse. It's Fire Nation time. Book of Fire. Let's go. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements wherever you get your podcasts. A graphic novel, a TV show, well it's not TV, it's HBO, and will this thing succeed, and by how much, man? And some might cheer, and some might scoff, because it's Damon Lindelof, but either way we're off to watch some Watchmen. Watching Watchmen Talking Watchmen Analyzing Watchmen And maybe arguing over Watchmen Welcome to Watchmen Watch, a podcast about Watchmen Where we watch Watchmen, you watch Watchmen, we all watch Watchmen I'm Alex I'm Justin and we are going to be talking about Chapter 8 of Watchmen, Old Ghosts, as we continue our walk through Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' classic comic book series leading up to the premiere of HBO's Watchmen on October 20th. Uh, speaking of which, I, I think uh, you were away last week, Justin. You were traveling yeah. cross-country with our co-host, Alan Moore. And then this week, Pete's gone oh, and Alan's gone. What's going on? Well, it's sort of, I'm uh, sad to say, we, so we drove all the way uh, cross-country out to L.A. for a karaoke contest. Um, we got all set. We were both super excited. He was gregarious, just like giggling, super mm-hmm, happy. Mm-hmm. Well, I know uh, Alan. You don't need to describe that. Yeah, exactly. Just like a real giggle monster, uh, putting his name on stuff as opposed to the other. And um, we, our song is Paradise by the Dashboard Light, obviously, by Meat Sure. Loaf. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, we both wanted to sing the the woman part. Okay. And we had to split up over creative differences. Oh, no. Um, so uh, what's going on? Where's Pete? Is Pete so off? Pete's out there doing the man, the male part. Alan flew him in. He's got all that uh, watchman cache. So he flew Pete in to just do the guy part. Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing I know about Alan, he's always willing to put out his own money for other people. He's yeah. very into, he's always dropping, and it's honestly a little annoying. He's like, you guys know I'm the author of Watchmen, and I got yeah. a lot of money because of that. Yeah, and he's like, this round's on me. And, you know, I have, everybody drinks on Watchmen, is what he's always mm-hmm. saying. He, the other day we were hanging out and he started stuffing dollar bills in my G-string, and I was like, I'm not wearing a G-string, Alan. This is, you're just stuffing dollar bills down my pants. Uh, yes, though I will say those are very, very short pants for t- to be mistaken. Uh, I'm comfortable? Yeah, no, it's good. Those are the smallest jorts I've seen in quite some time. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Let's jump in and talk about old ghosts. Now, I will mention that uh, Pete did tell me about this issue. He's very bummed to not be here to talk about this issue. Mm. Of course, this is the big 
prison breakout issue. A lot of Rorschach stuff going on. He's very into it. This is, I believe he said his favorite issue in the run. Really? Oh, that's interesting. How do you feel about it, Justin? Well, this is the issue where sort of all of the gears are coming together. All the disparate stories and characters uh, are the sort of the the squad is forming with Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Manhattan appearing, um, uh, Night Owl and Silk Spectre 2. Their relationship is going strong. They're fighting crime. They rescue Rorschach. Rorschach's uh, sort of worldview is expanded to almost all of us, to including Night Owl, the new frontiersman, as we learn here. We get a sort of inside look at that. Um, and we're all starting to sort of believe Rorschach. Yeah, it's uh, I did want to talk about that a bit. And this is certainly jumping right into the middle of the issue, as well as the back matter of the issue. But uh, we've talked a lot on the podcast about Rorschach's worldview, how it was different back in 1986 when this is published versus 2019 when we're reviewing it now. But even even through that lens, the new frontiersman which Rorschach read religiously, read it every single day, as we know, man, that's, that's an anti-Semitic paper, like straight up there. What do you think it means? This is the thing that I was wrestling with, particularly reading the back matter, because we get to see the staff of the new frontiersman putting together their paper. And then we read a snippet of the dummy version of that paper um, that they are both anti-Semitic, racist, and terrible, but also closer to the truth than anybody else. What do you think that means? Uh, well, I, I think it's confusing. Um, I, a couple things. I mean, I think it's, it, like I was saying, it's meant to be sort of a larger uh, reflection of Rorschach's conspiracy-minded thinking. I think it, if I was thinking as a writer of this, I think it's saying – hey, even these outlandish things are sometimes correct. Mm-hmm. And in, even the, the disgusting rapper, I'm assuming that Alan Moore is not uh, a racist anti-Semite. Sure. But I think he was trying to say even this like disgusting package sometimes is, gets, gets it right. Like a, a stop clock is right uh, twice a day. Mm-hmm. And I think that fits with a lot of the clock imagery we have here. Um, that's the way, sort of the charitable way I can say it. The uncharitable thing is back in this, back at then in the eighties, like there were these like zines and small publications that, uh, had these just bad ideas and put them out into the world and had a small group of followers. And literally because of the internet, that is why we're, our politics are sort of so messed up because you have, (laughs) uh, these like far right, uh, news sources that have been moved into the mainstream and, makes i feel like that's a lot what the watchman series is going to be getting into is like websites like breitbart and daily wire i feel like the the modern Mm -hmm. translation of all this stuff and they have affected our politics in a huge way well to get even deeper down this well and we're certainly going to be probably digging ourselves a grave with a certain section of the audience i think but there's a running theme through this entire comment comic that the outside people, the people who are the deviants, the people that are removed from society, like the comedian, like Rorschach, like the new frontiersman, they're the only ones that really see things for how they truly are versus 
Dan and Lori, for the most part, they're willing to just cruise in their lives. You know, they're just sort of doing their thing. They're going along. They're ignoring everything. The regular people are barely involved at all. They're just sort of following along what everybody else is telling them to do. And ultimately, that's Adrian Veidt's plan is he believes, well, if I tell people it's this thing, they're going to believe it. So it's a very cynical, very nihilistic view of the way the world works. And the reason I said digging well is I think one of the very bad influences that's come out of Watchmen and seeped into comics and pop culture is this idea that if you do stand outside of society, you are the person that is always right. You know, you look at, we've talked a lot about on our other podcasts about Joker, and certainly we haven't seen the movie. I think by the time this episode comes out, uh, the movie will just be out in theaters. But that seems to be saying the same sort of thing, where it's this cynical darkness, this outsider who truly is the person who sees society for the grimy, bad that it usually is, and the rest of the normies like us, like you and me, frankly, are just kind of trucking along. But I don't think society is as simple as that, frankly. No, and even in this book, like, I think a lot of people, like we were saying, and and Pete even really reads into Rorschach as the hero or as the person that you're meant to identify with. And I don't know, I I think it's it's pretty even-handed. I think the mystery, the fact that it lines up with Rorschach's uh, conspiracy theories makes it naturally feel like it's from him, his point of view. But he suffers through so much of this, and he is – in the end, he doesn't, like, mm-hmm. unravel the mystery. The mystery sort of comes for the heroes, uh, and they get drawn in by Adrian Veidt, uh, as we will read eventually. So, like – and Rorschach – loses so like uh, to me it feels like uh i don't know it it's not like we are that's that's the wrong lesson to take from this is that that rorschach is right the whole time and conspiracy Mm -hmm. theories are meant to be believed well i think part of that is they're not offering a solution right they're pointing out the ills of society they're pointing out this corruption this death this rot that is the base of everything but all they're really saying is see this is bad versus clearly adrian veidt's solution isn't good just trucking along and ignoring things isn't good but not coming up with an out for that is also not necessarily good, not figuring out a way forward. And ultimately, what I think they're pointing out is, well, one of the things that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons are pointing out is that society is broken. There is this rot under it. There is, through the government, through our art, through our entertainment, through our everyday relationships, uh, they are broken, But it's more holding up this mirror to this thing and saying, here, see, like the new Frontiersman does, though obviously in a very extreme, very wrong way. And then ultimately it is up to the viewer to talk about this and reflect on it and think about what they themselves are going to do. So then who are we? We're the pirate uh, on a raft of dead bodies. Well, I think I think we talked about how Rorschach is the pirate, right? I don't. I don't know who we are in this comic. Well, I'd, I'd, I would think the way that we see the the, um, the Curse of the Black Freighter 
through the the reader who we we mm-hmm. see the comic book page in panel a lot. I feel like that's meant to be uh, just a device to get us into that story, and we are then that person suffering. The world is uh, our lives are like long and torturous. We have these goals, and it's we're always just two steps uh, away from them, and we sacrifice so much to get what we want, and then it's. Uh, horrifying in the end. Well, uh, if anything, I'll just throw this out there, and this is a very unformed opinion, but if anything, maybe we're Dr. Manhattan in a certain way. We, I mean, you mentioned the kid who's reading the comic by the newsstand, and we get to see him again this issue. We're him, and in a way, he's Dr. Manhattan, who is able to experience all these things simultaneously in whatever order he wants. It's the same thing with us as the comic reader, right? We're looking at all these different paddles. You can visually look at the full page where you see nine paddles at the same time, or you can choose to focus in on one panel, or you can choose to focus in on multiple paddles. Certainly, Gibbons is offering us a way of walking through it and a way of looking through it. Uh, But it's up to us. If we decide we want to flip five pages ahead or go back a couple of pages, that's how we do it. And yeah, that's cool. I, I've always, always thought of Dr. Manhattan as the author, though. And mm-hmm. uh, sort of for the same reason, it's just the, the further outside perspective where the author is deciding. It knows the whole story and is deciding the order in which we get to read it. Now, one other thing I'll throw out at you, and this might be old news by the time we post this episode. Uh, we taped these a little while in advance. Uh, there was an article that came out about a week ago, our time, in EW, it was an interview with Damon Lindelof where he was talking about the HBO version of Watchmen. And there was a bit of an uproar online because he said that the TV show wouldn't moralize. And people yeah. got very upset. They said, oh, what are you talking about? Oh, great. This doesn't seem true to the spirit of Watchmen. But I would say based on our discussion right now, I think what Watchmen doesn't do and what it does particularly in this issue is it doesn't moralize it presents you with moral situations and then leaves it up to you the reader to decide how to react to them yeah yeah i think so and it it, it's pretty even-handed like we're not meant to that's why i think so many people are like who's the hero of watchmen and it's hard to say like if it was more moralized Mm -hmm. you'd be like oh it's obviously night owl or or dr manhattan or whoever or adrian veidt for that matter so i I do think it's pretty even-handed like when i finished Watchmen for the first time i was like man ozymandias had that shit figured out (laughs) you liked him well he I think the the book's meant to make you think, like, who saved the world? He did also. Yeah. You know, Rorschach was, in his own way, his rigid morality. I mean, we're going to talk about this in a few issues, obviously. Killed him, and he lost. So he was, for the sake of the world or the fate of the world, he was a bit of the villain that was trying to stop Ozymandias from saving the planet from itself. Yeah. Well— This is something we touched on a little bit in the last episode of the podcast. Pete and I talked about because the issue was so focused on Dan and Laurie, and I think the same thing happens here. These two issues are the most superhero comic we've gotten so far. And I think that's because 
Dan and Laurie are the most middle-of-the-road characters. Both of them are kind of very casual about being heroes. Dan was a billionaire and thought, yeah, sure, I could be a superhero. That sounds like fun. Laurie, as we revisit in this issue, only did it because she thought, well, my mother did it, so I guess I should do it as well. Yeah. But at the same time, they're the ones that get the most in superhero action. So when I read first read Watchmen, they were the ones that I identified with, that I hooked into the most, because to me, they felt like the most recognizable characters. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. That was definitely, they were the ones who were like, oh, I get this, and I like that they're hooking up, and, and quote, maybe maybe in love, maybe not. You're really pulling for Dan, I think, yeah. for a lot of this, where it's like, work it out, dude. <laughs> yeah, you could do it. I think also it's very clearly... Painting him as a 40-year-old overweight man with glasses is really gutting for the comic book reading demographic, where it's like, hey, that's you. You're this guy. You could be Night Owl. Get in the ship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Uh, he has a plan for everything. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's true. Yeah. So uh, let's, you want to jump into the issue? You want to walk through it? Yeah, let's walk through it a little bit. Uh, so we start with a conversation between uh, Hollis, the original Night Hour, and Sally Jupiter, the original Silk Spectre. Um, this is just some fun nostalgia. I feel like nostalgia is a big theme in this mm-hmm. um, issue. Uh, which I, And then it's, it's Halloween night. There's a bunch of kids going out for some fun. Um, and then to talk about the end of the issue, this um, bookends the comic. Uh, a bunch of people who we see getting all crazed over the course of the issue go and murder Hollis in his house as these innocent kids then come to trick-or-treat with him. I feel like this is uh, very much the uh, the death of nostalgia, the death of the mm-hmm. old, and the world is different now kind of a take. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, the other part of it, which we actually haven't talked about at all over the course of the podcast, one of the running things in the background that comes to bear this issue is that gang. Uh, And the way that I understand it, there's this band. uh, It's not called... One of the members of the band is called Red Death, which is pretty directly from Mask of the Red Death, the Edgar Allan Poe story. Um, But the gang, I believe, is called the Pale Horseman, which, again, is a sign of death. So they're running in the background, and they finally make a move here. They've been sort of passing through things. They've occasionally, they got beaten up by Dan and Laurie a couple of issues back. And ultimately here, they end up killing Hollis, at least partially because they think that he is Dan Dryberg. They think that he is the night owl that broke into the prison and they want to take revenge on him. There's a little part of me, and this might be not remembering the last couple of issues well, but does wonder if this is another part of Adrian Veidt's plan to take people out, but maybe not. Hmm. Yeah, this feels just like, to me, like just general society is crumbling mm-hmm. because of the pressure of nuclear war. And this is, I think, makes more of the case that, like, Ozymandias' plan that we find out later is right. Like, the society is crumbling and mm-hmm. he ne- he needs to rewrite the course of mankind because it's come to rely on Dr. Manhattan to uh, protect them and yeah. solve all their political problems. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, it is a nice uh, a nicely laid out conversation as well. I love, again, the juxtaposition between and I know I've been saying that word too much, uh, yeah. but between the old pictures of Hollis Mason and Night Owl 
and Sally as uh, Silk Spectre and them talking about themselves in costume in particular. I thought those are just two fun, well laid out panels. Uh, one, one thing I want to touch on here, because this is also part of the bookend, this takes place mostly on Halloween night. We get to see three trick-or-treaters who later discover the dead body of Hollis Mason, a ghost, a devil, and a pirate. I think the pirate is very clear because we know that pirates are super popular in the way that superheroes are super popular in the real world. Uh, Ghost certainly seems to come from old ghosts. Uh, And then there's the devil, which also could tie in death. But what do you take away from this costumes? What do you take away from it it being set on Halloween? Uh, I think it, well, I mean, costumes, the superheroes are wearing costumes. Like, I think it all, uh, that all plays pretty, pretty directly. Uh, last issue we saw that Night Owl, like, he fucks way better when he's in his costume. <laughs> right. Uh, just like all of us. Yeah. Um, and I, I think part of it is um, innocence uh, wrapped in sort of horrifying things. Um, so much of this issue is the the flip of that horror, horrifying things uh, wrapped up in innocence where you have these people that just seem like they're hanging out and talking to the newsstand people. And all of a sudden they go and murder Hollis. Um, and that that juxtaposition of how we try to put ourselves out there and what is actually lying underneath. Yeah. Uh, well, then we jump over to a sequence set at the newsstand. We get to see the uh, Curse of the Black Freighter comic a little bit more. Um, these, I, I think we talked about the cops being the Rosencrass and Guildenstern. I almost yeah. feel like the newsstand people have taken over that job of this issue a little bit. Definitely, because the cops start to play a more threatening role uh, later on in this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, these are definitely the people on the street. They're dealing with uh, the world at large. These are like the people in Spider-Man who are like, man. This someone's got to catch this green goblin guy. <laughs> and then they get like buzzed by um, the sled uh, yeah. flying past. I like that you think green goblin rides a sled. I appreciate that. Well, he rides the little the air it's sled. It's a glider. It's a glider. glider. That's the yeah. word. Yes. Air sled. <laughs> uh, and then we glider. get a scene with uh, Dan and Lori where they're talking about their plan to break Rorschach out of prison. Uh, two things I wanted to call out about this that I thought were so neat. Now, last issue, the visual motif was all about reflections and circles. We kept seeing yeah. uh, everything reflected in Night Owl's goggles and Dan's glasses in Archie's uh, windows or whatever you want to call them um, over and over and over again as we kept zooming in and out of that. And for the majority of this comic, uh, for the majority of this issue, excuse me, uh, Dan's glasses and Night Owl's lenses are opaque. Yeah. Except, Except for when he is confronted by the police officer about halfway through where suddenly you can see his eyes. And I thought this was such a neat little thing to show that even now, even when he's dressed as Dan Dryberg in the scene with Laurie towards the beginning, he's still night owl. He's still in costume the entire time. He's confident. And Dave Givens draws him for the first time. Really? He's standing up straight. His body language is more confident. It's such a subtle little thing, but it's so smart and so clear and so nice. Confidence is the ultimate costume. Mm-hmm. It's true. That's why nobody recognizes me when I'm standing up straight. I'm usually hunched over like a little old witch. That's right. And that's why I go to work completely nude every day because yeah. confidence is the ultimate costume. 
hey, man, dress for the job you want. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, naked man in public. Yeah, I'll Got tell you it. what. I walk into work just wearing a T-shirt. So far, nobody's hired me as Winnie the Pooh, and it's a real bummer. Uh, you'll get that job, though. I guess I, where, what office are you walking into that you think Winnie? There's a Winnie the Pooh position. Uh, I walk into Dwayne Reed. Is that where they hire? That's pretty bears? good. There's, there's a, a lot of honey bit. there. <laughs> there is. I'm always eating that honey, and I'm always getting stuck in their doors. Then after the Dan and Lori stuff, we jump right into the prison stuff with Rorschach. Uh, we get to see him very stoically sitting in his prison cell. He's just waiting for something to happen. Uh, meanwhile, a bunch of criminals, somebody that he seemingly first uh, tussled with back when he was a superhero called Big Figure, who is a short guy. And that's the funny part. That's uh, sh- a killer joke. Good oh, dude. Man. Whew. Yes. I I did like that. I love these little details that they throw in with the old-timey superheroes because uh, and supervillains because they feel so consistent with the comic books of the time. Yeah, and I mean, goofy I think is what you like these all this super dark gritty storytelling about all the the heroes they were dealing with in this comic and all of their back life, all of their earlier crime fighting stuff is just like Battling a bunch of goobs. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about Rorschach a little bit, because he does, like I said, sit there very still the entire time while he's interacting with Big Figure. Big Figure is threatening him. His goons is threatening him. They say, we have plenty of time. We're going to kill you in jail. You're not going to survive this. Do you think Rorschach knows that he is going to be broken out, or do you think he knows he has a plan, or is he just completely disengaged from everything? What's going on with him? I think he is like a uh, sort of a, a coiled snake. He's in like full fighting position. He's just fully at peace, fully Rorschach. Um, I, I think there, there's a line here where his where we hear that his psychologist has left him, mm-hmm. and I think that proves that he's right. That he's able to influence that psychologist to fully just give up on society, basically. Um, and I think that gives him the the confidence to know whatever happens, I'm going to be ready and be able to be at my peak um, when these people come to try to kill me or whatever. And he is. I mean, throughout this sequence, these series of uh, little bits here, he he dominates these criminals yeah. who have him pinned in. Yeah, and we do, to jump back a little bit to the newsstand thing, there's two things we find out. One, the guy that he hit with hot oil died. We find that out uh, throughout this issue. Uh, But also, the psychologist does pass by the newsstand. They remark on it a little bit, but they don't know who he is. And initially, I thought that the psychologist was going into the Department of Extraspatial Studies. Looking back on it, I don't think he's actually doing that, but... One of the big things that happened this issue that really does make it feel either like the beginning of the final act or the end of the second act is everything starting to come together. Everything is passing yeah. by each other, and these coincidences are really uh, snowballing, so to speak. Yeah, it feels like this issue, especially the section we're about to get to, is sort of like putting everything on the table, letting everyone have a look at it while still the action is is mm-hmm. plummeting forward. Um, as we get back to the essential mystery that we've sort of not really been paying attention to too much. It's been a lot of like character stuff. And mm-hmm. now we're about to start hitting that full like s- slope down toward the, the climax. And I think part of that is just plot wise. 
Dan the realization that he comes to the last issue that there might be more to what Rorschach is saying than just ravings of a crazy person. He starts to trust that, okay, I worked with this guy back in the day. Maybe he's actually onto something. Maybe somebody actually is taking out masks. Maybe there is some bigger plan that I can't quite see here. And we do get to see um, him Batman out a little bit, putting together all the clues, which I thought was very fun. Yeah. Uh, so if we, I guess let's get to that. We have the scene uh, where the cops confront him at home. He, Dan's pretty panicked um, uh, in the actual scene with the cop, and it feels like he's busted. But as soon as the cop leaves, he slips back into uh, Batman Night Owl mode where he's like, we got to do this now. They're getting close. Um and then we get this great progression of scenes that are tipping a hat to all these other things while we're also seeing Night Owl and Silk Spectre just get ready for their uh, super heroic moment, which I think is just a what a great montage to sort oh of my God. bring it's, together it's, all the threads. It's so good. If you're not looking at the comic right now, if you're just listening to this, there's a series of pages. They all have six panels at the top and one silent panel at the bottom. And the ones at the bottom are playing off of what's happening at the top, of course, because this is very consistent with what's been going out of the comic. I believe it's called juxtaposition, Alex. Oh, I was trying to avoid using that word again. Interesting. I felt you feel it, felt you say it in your heart. So I wanted to say it out loud. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, We get to see them getting everything ready. And this almost to me plays like an overture in a certain way where we get to see the new frontiersmen. For the first time, we get to see what's happening on this island that's been teased before. We get to see the missing, uh, not a superhero writer, the missing pirate comic writer who has been working on, he thinks, a Hollywood movie. We see the squid monster for the first time being drawn by somebody. We, get to see, we truly have no idea what the, that means. Yes. Nothing. I, I definitely remember very vividly, uh, I, and I had completely forgotten about that page until I got back to it, but I remember the first time reading that, I was like, what, what is going on yeah. here? What is yeah, this like, page? It's like, is this a mis- uh, panel from another comic that's yeah. somehow in here? Um, yeah, totally out of nowhere. What do you think, going back one section to the New Frontiersman, obviously, like, this guy's such a dick, and his assistant, though, is wearing a shirt with a smiley face on it? Mm-hmm. Is that meant to be some sort of, like, uh, pre-comedian, reference to, like, a pre-comedian uh, type person? Is this a person who, like, ha- just has no vision of the world? He's in just a smiley face that's untarnished by blood? I mean, that might be part of it. Certainly, he seems like a very naive, simple bay, to use modern parlance. Uh, he, nice. But at the same time, I think Comedian wore that pin, right? And yeah. he is probably a superhero fanboy, so it might just be a Comedian sweatshirt that he picked up somewhere, potentially. Tight. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, and then... We get to see Hollis Mason putting together the jack-o'-lantern, basically bringing around his own horror, his own doom. Once again, we get dripping pumpkin juice over an eye. It looks exactly like the comedian's button with the blood on it. We get that recurring visual motif. Uh, And we get to see they are called, uh, I don't know if they're called Pale Horsemen, but they're from the gang Pale Horse. Uh, bothering the newsstand person and being very upset about everything that's going on. They find out that there is a riot in the jail. They're pretty pissed off about that. It's in a certain way, 
Rorschach being arrested really is the spark that sets this all off almost more than Russia invading Afghanistan, I think. Yeah, uh, though I do think there's an existential dread for everyone. They're like, we're all going to die. The, the new Sand guy is constantly talking about how they, he thinks everyone's going to die, playing out that anxiety. And even the, the way these panels are laid out, it's such a stressful build, an anxious build. of It's empty, a pretty empty panel with just the comic book. Then all of a sudden there's smoke everywhere. There's all these people. There's a dude named Durf. Uh, everyone's crowding into the That's panel. stressful. Yeah, Meaning a dude, dude named Durf, stressful. Exactly. That's a weird name. Uh, <laughs> and everyone starts shouting. Like, it, it's building up. This is a, the formation of a riot. Um, and they're trying to get those Katie's. Mm-hmm. Got to get them Katie's. That's that street drug. Yeah. What's your, what's your favorite thing about Katie? About Katie? Yeah. Uh, having Katie's? Yeah. Taking Katie's? Mm-hmm. I, I like the way they just... Uh, make you crazy, make you want to like cut off the sleeves off your jean jackets and, uh, you know, just like run amok in the streets. Yeah. Uh, the, I know it was kind of the look at the time, but I immediately thought about Mutant Leader from Dark Knight Returns just because they have the same sort of like, we're very extreme and we're wearing those very angular sunglasses at night. Yeah. It's true. That was the most menacing uh, fashion choice you could make back in the day. Yeah, wear 3D glasses. Terrifying. Uh, and then we go back to the prison. We see Rorschach in a sequence that I am 100% sure Pete absolutely loved, where yeah. a dude goes after Rorschach. Rorschach turns around, twists his fingers around, ties his pinkies together through the bars of the jail cell, and then Big Figure is forced to cut his throat. Rorschach is splashed with the blood, now, let nothing is wasted in this comic, right? No, yeah. Nothing is unimportant. What do you take away from the way Rorschach is splashed with the blood? Because it's not it's not the same design as the comedian's button. It's no. not a Rorschach test because it's only on one side of him. What do you think Gibbons and John Higgins, who did the coloring, what do you think they're trying to do with this? Uh, to me, his position uh, makes me think of a toy soldier or uh, just a, a doll who's playing out his part, and he's taking this all this blood on him. He's getting splattered. He's getting tarnished by this shitty situation that he's in. It might also be, just to throw something out, but it might also be that he's only half the man right now. You know, he still is Rorschach because, as clearly – uh, explained a couple of issues back. Walter Kovacs doesn't exist. He thinks of himself just Rorschach, but he's missing his skin right now. He's missing the thing that truly makes him him. So maybe that's why he only has this Rorschach blot on w- the left side of his body. Mm, I see. Yeah. Well, then we then we get a f- switch of everything that's going on now that Night Owl and... Uh, Keep wanting to say Sally Specter, Silk Specter. Thank you. Are in the prison. We switch it and we get this great panel of them flying over the walls Such as the guards shoot him. So good. Uh, and the entire time, to get back to the Dan of it all, Night Owl is completely in charge. He's so confident the entire time, and it's kind of amazing to see. Yeah, and even though he's dressed like a. Giant owl in a prison full of people who wanna, would want to kill him. He's totally mm-hmm. chill about it, wearing a cape that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
This is, I know we've lumped on the movie a lot on this podcast, and I'm sure at some point we'll delve back into the movie and do a full episode about it. But man, reading over the comic, I, I think I read the comic, read the comic again, watched the movie, and I haven't read the comic since I watched the movie, so that was stuck in my head. So I was real surprised that they didn't kick anybody's asses at any point here. They basically just walk into the prison, and the whole riot and everything is going on around them, and they don't do much. Yeah. I like that. I think it adds to the tension. It sort of has a haunted house aspect to it where – um, they're just trying to find Rorschach, and then when they f- confront him, you can't tell if he's bad, like he's bad or he's a menace. He's all in red. Uh, it seems like he may have officially lost it, um, and you just see him go and kill uh, the one the big figure, the one guy who was uh, trying to kill him off panel in the bathroom, and then walk out with the, with the heroes. I mean, I ever since I've read this, I pretty much assume anytime somebody says I have to go to the men's room, that they're killing somebody in there. It's definitely true for me, half the time. Yes. Two things I want to point out visually that go on. One, when Rorschach walks out of his cell, he walks through a puddle of blood and leaves footprints of blood exactly like he did back in the very first issue of the comic. Although this time now we know that Walter Kovacs is in fact Rorschach. Uh, And then the other thing that happens that I think is so great with the coloring that John Higgins puts in the book is after Rorschach kills big figure, he walks out of the room. And like you mentioned, everything is in red. He's cut out the electricity from the jail. So there's no lights on there, only the emergency lights. And we see this puddle coming out and you would potentially assume out of a bathroom, given that the puddle is just all red and reflective, it could be piss. It could be water, but we know even without seeing it, that it's big figures blood that's coming out there. And it's such a great choice. Yeah. yeah. I like the idea that you look at this and your first thought is like, Hey, that could be piss. Yeah. Hey man, it's a bathroom. Could be Gatorade. Again, it could be yellow Gatorade. Again, at the Dwayne Reed where I'm trying to get my Winnie the Pooh job. A lot of, a lot of piss in there. Yeah. Just like all Dwayne Reeds. So yeah, I like, especially I, this is something they should have done in the movie is, Rorschach doesn't go in and kill that dude. He just goes in there and just like sprays pee all over the place. So much. He's been holding he's been holding it in the entire time he's been in jail and finally mm-hmm. he's like, "Oh, th- yes." That's why he's go sitting, to the men's room. That's why he's sitting so straight up. Cuz yeah. he's full of piss. Piss and vinegar, I got to say. Yeah, you got to say that. Yeah, the other thing that he probably does, frankly, like knowing Rorschach, knowing what's going on here, probably goes in, puts all the seats up. And just walks out. Oh, what a and you're bastard. Like, Put him down. Come on, man. Yeah, come on. What People don't want to touch that right when yeah. they're in there and got to go. Do you think Rorschach washes his hands when he leaves the bathroom? Uh, no, I bet he's like reads articles about how the dirtiest part of the bathroom is the knob on the sink. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm not touching that. Yeah. Speaking of dirty things, uh, we get an interesting interaction when he shows up and sees Silk Spectre and Night Owl there, uh, where he tells Night Owl, oh, good to see you back in the costume, Dan. Uh, Lori, I never liked your costume. It's gross. Which, you know, whatever you want to get into with, like, the misogyny, incel nature of Rorschach, it's still a very funny and very clearly Rorschach exchange that he has there. Yeah, I mean, that's an insulting thing to say to your superhero friend. It's like, hey, work on the costume a little bit. Yeah, it's it's gross, but 
for some reason, it works for me here just because Rorschach is being such a weirdo and we've been away from him for so long and learned that he's such a bad, gross guy uh, that seeing him compared to Night Owl and Silk Spectre, it, it diffuses it a little bit. It feels well, like also, it. I think it matches the idea of like, like Night Owl's his buddy and he has his new girlfriend out with him. He's like, oh, I thought it was just going to be you and I hanging out and she's right. going to be here. <laughs> like, I thought we were going to go like play darts. What's, yeah. what's she doing here? What we're we friends. Do? I love you. Go see some rom-com or something. Come on, man. Come on. It was our night. We're going to do go up to the water tower and write our names. <laughs> Uh, so then they uh, head out in Archie in the owl ship. Another great shot of Rorschach hanging out the top of the owl ship as they fly away from the prison. Uh, and then they get back and there's kind of a big twist where Laurie, who has been touching on talking about Dr. Manhattan, the entire issue, accidentally mentioning his name because she's just off the relationship with him and keeps apologizing about it, talks about, I wish somebody would just take care of this for us. And yeah. Dr. Manhattan, totally dude, just holding a magazine, reading about himself, mind you, shows up in her bedroom to be like, oh, we're actually having a conversation right now on Mars. That hasn't happened yet for you, but it's happening simultaneously for me. Just thought I'd come down here and let you know we're going to Mars now. Uh, yeah. what, what do you think Dr. Manhattan wants out of this conversation? I don't think he wants... Uh, anything. I think he really is just like fulfilling the the gears of the clock um, that he he says he is. Well, what about uh, on the other end of the spectrum? What about Lori? Uh, this is something we touched on in a couple of episodes of this podcast, but particularly we delved into it a bit in the last episode. What Lori wants. And here, do you think there is anything to her constantly dropping Dr. Manhattan's name, to her being totally fine to just say, oh, I'm going to Mars, see you later, Dan, bye, at the end. Is she still not as into the relationship with Dan as Dan is with Lori? What's your take on it? Well, I think they're, they're opposites. Like, I think when she was with John and uh, finally their relationship falls apart because he's being too much for her, um, she loved, sort of falls for Dan because he's the most human, the most like every man of anyone that she hangs out with, yet still has the touches of the superhero side. So she can get a little bit of everything with him. But then when she sort of conjures him out of nowhere and it's like, oh, this is my guy. He's all powerful. He doesn't he doesn't have issues with confidence. He just is what he is. She gets swept back up into him. I think she's just in the middle of her uh, a tough spot. But I think at the end of it, she loves the, the Dr. Manhattan that she first met so many years ago. And Night Owl just isn't enough to, to fill that gap. There's also the possibility that she's lazy, frankly. Uh, that's oh, wow. something that, not not to take her down a notch, but that's something that Sally mentions right at the beginning of the issue, where she tells Hollis Mason on the phone, oh, it's so funny that Lori is going out and doing this stuff. She never really wanted to put it into the work to be a superhero. She was always kind of annoyed and bored by it. Um, certainly that's Sally's take, and she has her own take, but it could be a relief in a certain way to Lori to say, oh, thank God. Okay, we don't have to figure out a mystery. We don't have to break anybody else out of prison. Great. John is here. He's going to solve everything. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a, there's a little truth to that. But also, I think she's someone who has never really made her own decisions in her life. Like she just became a superhero because her mom sort of made her. She was with John because it was convenient. Um, though I do think she actually loves him. She was with Dan because he was chasing after her. And then this is, and she doesn't even really have to make a decision here because Doctor Manhattan is like, no, you are talking to me in one hour, and so she's like, okay, and then <laughs> off she goes. Uh, then we get to see Rorschach and Night Owl escaping from the police in a parallel to the scene of Night Owl and Lori leaving by the tunnel, the last issue. And then we get to the saddest scene in the issue, which we talked about earlier, but Hollis Mason getting killed by this gang. It's intercut with scenes of him in his prime beating up villains and having a great time doing it. And it's, even though we haven't spent a lot of time with Hollis Mason, it's gutting, I think, this sequence. Yeah, I think because at our core, if you read comic books and then you find Watchmen, like Hollis represents sort of regular comics. And so to see him die, even though we don't know too much about him as an individual, it sort of it feels like, you know, Batman, you're, you're the comic characters you sort of grew up and have nostalgia for are just being murdered right in front of you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, in a certain way, then, would you say the leader of the Pale Horse is Alan Moore? And he's like, yep, that's it. Watchmen killed superhero comics. I mean, yeah, I do. Like, especially I think when these kids in the last panel of the issue when the kids walk in and see his dead body. Like, I think that's sort of that's the comic book industry being like, oh, shit, things just got fucked up in here. (laughs) Because after this comic, it was like, oh, uh, there's a it's a whole new game out there. Now, one other last thing that I wanted to mention uh, is Hooded Justice. This is a character that we haven't spent a lot of time with, but will become important, I believe, if I remember correctly, pretty soon. The ghost character who shows up, the trick-or-treater who's dressed like a ghost, who shows up towards the end, looks a lot like Hooded Justice, at least in terms of the profile. Then immediately following that, we get the new Frontiersman article that's honor is like the hawk. Sometimes it must go hooded. And there's also a lowercase reference to hooded justice in the text of one of those articles as well. So uh, what I think is most interesting about that, I don't think we're getting to it immediately, but it's more essentially saying, hey, don't forget about this hooded justice character. I know we're saying we killed off the past, but we're not quite done with it completely. Yeah. Because it does inform, like, uh, everything is meaningful. It's just the this issue especially puts a real flag in just what a dystopian world um, is happening around all of this action right now. And just to get back to the HBO show of it all, I think it's going to be kind of fascinating to see uh, focus on Hooded Justice just because Sister Knight, who is Regina King's character in the show, seems clearly inspired in the text of the show by Hooded Justice. So I think there's going to be a lot of riffs on that relatively underserved character when we watch the TV show, but we'll have to see. It almost like feels like the, the TV series, uh, the more we see of it is like, oh, it's all happening again from the mm-hmm. beginning. So yeah. it's not, it's using all of the, 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 the Watchmen stuff that we know and setting it after that. But mm-hmm. the cycle is beginning once again. Yeah. Because we're and starting if, with Hooded Justice and Rorschach is there, but in a different thing. It's Everything is remixed, but it is from the very same beginning. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about this issue before we wrap up here? 
uh, comics are good. I agree. If you'd like to support us, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater Loft in New York. Come on by. We'll chat with you about Watchmen. A couple of places you can check out this podcast. You can go to Facebook, Watchmen Watch Podcast. Also, Instagram, Watchmen Watch Podcast. On Twitter, Watchmen Watch One. Sorry, we couldn't get Watchmen Watch Podcast. That's just how Twitter works. Also, you can check out the podcast at comicbookclublive.com. Subscribe, rate, and leave a comment on iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app of your choice. And remember, we taped this podcast 35 minutes ago. Alan just texted me. He said, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. Pete is bad at karaoke. I'll definitely be there next week. <laughs>